most people look at milestones as material things like getting your dream job, a high salary, a house. I feel like there are also unquantifiable milestones like unlearning old beliefs, getting over a big heartbreak, pushing forward despite setbacks, putting others before yourself. I think these are like milestones of resilience and I think they're quite undervalued in society, which is a shame. Hi everyone, it's Joe. You're listening to Occupational Hazards, a series of candid conversations with some of the most inspiring people I know as they share their path to finding their calling and all the gritty realities of their jobs. Whether you want to demystify your dream job or are someone like me who enjoys getting a peek into other people's work lives, then this is the podcast for you. Our next guest is educating the broader public about sustainability and climate justice through her interdisciplinary art and science background. Catherine Sarah Young is an artist, a writer, and a designer with a very strong science background. She obtained a Bachelor of Science in Molecular Biology and Biotechnology, magna cum laude, from the University of the Philippines where she won Best Thesis for her work in mutagenesis, cloning, and anti-tumor antibody genes. She then studied contemporary art in Barcelona and at the Art Students League of New York. Afterward, she obtained her Master of Fine Arts in Interaction Design at the School of Visual Arts, or SVA, in New York on a Fulbright Scholarship. She is currently a Ciencia Scholar obtaining her PhD in art and design from the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Kat has a number of artist residencies under her belt. For those outside the art world, artist in residence programs give artists the opportunity to live and work outside of their usual environments, providing them with the time to reflect, research, or produce work. During a residency, Artists can explore new locations, different cultures, or experiment with different materials. The majority of Kat's work focuses on climate change awareness, which has taken her to residencies all over Asia, Africa, Europe, North America, and South America, including a stint in the Amazon rainforest. She will be an artist in residence at the Sydney Observatory middle of this year, and a part of Team HB6 at Homeward Bound for Antarctica 2022 with 99 other women with a STEM background to undertake a leadership program. She has also been named an Obama Foundation leader for Asia Pacific. Catherine has been a journalist, a research assistant at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, an intern at the American Museum of Natural History, and a guest lecturer at the University of the Underground in Amsterdam, among other professional experiences. What's next? Space? Well, actually, she's just finished a residency on contemporary ideas of space exploration with the Museum of Cosmonautics in Moscow. Here's Kat to tell us all about the next frontier. Hi, Kat. Hey, Joe. How are you? I'm okay. How are things in Australia? Where are you in your pandemic arc? You're in an 
profession where being on site is so important. So perhaps you can tell us like what it's been like in quarantine or lockdown on where you are. Uh, well, I'm in Sydney and um, we're not in lockdown. I'm actually very fortunate to be here where I am safe and I have to wear masks on public transport, but otherwise life is more or less back to normal. All of my residencies are online if I have them. I think I've been meeting so many people online, so many fellowship meetings, um, residency meetings, all online. I think the worst thing that's happened to me is my sleep schedule is really bad just because um, being in Australia, I'm usually the time zone um, difference isn't the best for me. But I'm still pushing on and continuing to do all of my work, which I think is, I feel very lucky, like in the pandemic, um, I'm still able to do things. But yeah, it's fun. Australia is great. That's good. I was reading your bio to prepare for this and you have done so much in the past few years. And I know that you mentioned there were some residencies that you were really looking forward to that were either put on hold or rescheduled, or maybe the format had to change to virtual instead of on-site. Do you think you could talk about some of those? Hmm, sure. Well, there are things that are postponed. For example, I was supposed to be on the Trans-Siberian Railway, um, and that's postponed to well, hopefully next year, when things hopefully go back to not in the normal that I think we're going to have, but when international travel is possible. So I had a residency in Finland that uh, ended up online, but in a way that was okay because I ended up just doing more work in the studio or in the lab I'm, I'm in right now here in my university. I think that not being able to travel is the newest thing to happen to me. I think I'm so used to being on the go. But, you know, I actually like just staying at home or staying in one city for a while. I feel like it's giving me some time to really reflect. I think before Sydney, I was like so exhausted with all the traveling. I, mean, I would do as many as three to four residencies a year and like all the exhibitions as well. So I think coming here feels like I'm given this time to incubate new ways to work, new ways of thinking and a lot of new projects. And also, you know, if you're doing a PhD, I would really recommend staying in, in one place for a while just to be able to think more deeply about your project. Yeah. In terms of the your topics of study for the PhD, because when we last saw each other in person, a lot of the projects that we were talking about had to do with the climate change and apocalypse project, right? How has being in Sydney kind of I guess, expanded your, your scope as far as uh, research interests go? Or, I mean, maybe it's not being in Sydney. It's also the passage of time. Like, how has the focus of your work changed since working on the Apocalypse Project? Um, and maybe you can also tell people what the Apocalypse Project is if they're not familiar with it. Ah, okay. No worries. Hi, everyone. So I work on art science projects about climate change and our environmental features. So I started this as an artist in residence at the Singapore ETH Future Cities Laboratory back in 2013, which seems like an eternity ago, back in the before time. So I started the Apocalypse Project as a way to showcase all of my artworks about climate change. For example, I make perfumes of things we could lose because of climate change. I make soap out of raw sewage to raise awareness on the fatbergs in our sewer system and a lot of related projects about sustainability issues. So coming to Sydney, I really wanted to deepen my work about the environment 
And I think I remember telling people in the beginning, I wanted to sort of find some refuge away from the different apocalypses that I encountered in all of the countries I was in. However, 2019 was the time when there was an epic bushfire crisis, if you guys remember. So I was telling people that I thought I escaped from all of the big crises in the world, but I realized I was actually in ground zero of climate change. Was it 2019 um, or 2020, the bushfires? Late 2019 and early. Okay. Okay. Yes. I remember December 2019 was the time it was really hot here in Sydney. But at the same time, I remember being fortunate enough to be in Malaysia at the time for the Obama leaders convening. So I slid back into Sydney um, right before the borders closed because of COVID. So, anyway, so being in Sydney, I feel like it's allowed me the time to sort of think about climate change in different aspects. So, right now I'm working on projects about the bushfire crisis. So I think it's more of looking at how all of these different issues affect all of us, regardless of where we are in the world. I mean, Australia has the bushfire crisis, but think about the forests that are burning in California or the Amazon and other related places and see that a lot of these issues really affect all of us. And I think for my PhD, I feel it's, it's really been a good time for me to read can't be a PhD student without reading all of these papers. And I think when I was going through um, different places in the world, I didn't have as much time or institutional access to read all these academic papers because academia is still largely relegated to these ivory towers. So yeah, it's been really great. I'm learning so many new things every day. And yeah, I'm almost halfway through. So hopefully I will see the light at the end of the <laughs> Yeah, you had a social media post about this saying you thought you kind of had escaped the apocalypses all over the rest of the world only to like, you know, land there. And then there was this bushfire. But I'm glad that you were using it as fuel. Sorry to use that pun. Fuel for future work. What I appreciate about being in Australia, at least during this time, is that I feel like, okay, the fight is here. Although I would say the fight is, you know, everywhere. But I feel like as an artist works in these issues, I feel useful, which is a good thing to feel. I think I don't feel like lying in bed, not doing anything. I feel like if there's a problem, I want to fix it. So I also don't think that one person can fix climate change. I feel like as an artist, if I can contribute something to climate change awareness and action, I would feel happy. But at the same time, though, I also recognize the extent of time and how you know, maybe I wouldn't live to see the fruits of my labors have as much impact as I hope. But I also think that's even more reason to keep going. I feel like there's so much hard work ahead of us. And I've come to terms with the fact that maybe I won't live to see a world where climate change deniers don't exist and where fossil fuel free But I think it's even more reason for me to keep going. I feel that it's really good to have like a higher cause that keeps you going in life and that keeps you waking up every day. And for me, if I live to see or if I aim for a world where, you know, my little cousins can grow into a world where they could be their fullest selves and free from environmental threats, racial threats and things like that, I think it's a fight that's worth having. Yeah, you you spoke about deniers, and uh, we can get into the psychology of why, you know, these 
folks exist and whatnot, but I'm happy to talk about that also. But one of the things I think that's been very effective in your work is because you combine science and art, you don't take a traditional approach to trying to convince people about how serious these issues are. A lot of pure scientists, quote unquote, you know, would use facts, about numbers, you take a totally different, like a sensory approach. You were you were mentioning earlier that in for your apocalypse project, you know, you were talking about what scents are going to disappear. That's why where you had your perfume bar, and then there was which sounds are going to disappear, meaning which animals and you know flora and fauna, like wildlife, are going to disappear as a result of climate change. And that's very powerful because people feel things before they think, almost right. So. Maybe you can talk about what was your thought process for developing this exhibit and was it able to convince some of the deniers? Were there actually people who approached you and said, you know, I had no idea it was this serious? I think because my background is in art, science and design, I don't really make a project and think, okay, this is the art part, this is the science part, this is the design part. I feel like I've been trained to use different tools if I wanted certain outcomes. I just like use them all and think of the general story of the project. So for the perfumes, I know that scent is a very powerful tool and it's also a more, our most intimate sense. And I also love perfumes. So I thought this was a good way to marry my interests with something I know that's a very powerful tool to convey something to people. As to whether people have come to me and asked questions about and told me that, okay, their minds were changed because of this, I actually don't know. Um, this is something that's kind of difficult to measure for an art project. What I do know is probably the strength of that project is that it can be exhibited not just in art galleries, but also science galleries and design exhibitions. So because it's interdisciplinary, I feel like the audience can also be a bit bigger than if it were just relegated to one field. So yeah, I really love that project. I feel like that's a project that will never die, but that's okay. I think our sense of smell is something that we don't normally think about when it comes to climate change. And also, I think for climate change projects, a lot of the numbers, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like we have like numbers fatigue sometimes, or even with typical visuals, like I feel like I definitely have dying polar bear fatigue and there are other ways to make a point. I'm not saying the numbers and the polar bears, they're not doing something, but I feel like there's also something else we can do. So I feel like my contribution as an artist who happens to have all of these training and different international experiences, this is probably the strength that I have to do something that you would not expect. Sure. Is that your favorite part of what you do or is there more? Oh yeah, I feel like I love challenging myself to do something no one has done before. I think pushing boundaries of what can be done and what people didn't think was possible is probably like my favorite moment. I think thinking about my project is like my favorite Eureka moment. And I have like some friends I talk to in terms of like pitching projects and I love gauging their reactions. And I think the next favorite part would be like figuring out how to actually do them. <laughs> Because I think, like, I have an outcome in mind, and then, but I don't really know the steps to get there, but figuring out those steps is actually a, a really um, fun thing to do for me. And then conversely, are there parts that you don't enjoy so much, or if someone were thinking of entering this career, 
things that might dissuade them from pursuing this path? Uh, I think in terms of per project, there's always some, I mean, my projects are very tricky. Like I think when I made the sewer soapery, like I had to work with raw sewage and this is definitely the most hellish thing I've ever done in my life. I wouldn't say I hated it. I actually found it fun, but not every day. Um, also, I think in terms of just living the life of an artist, um, getting rejections in terms of grant applications and similar applications is also not fun. But I like to do it anyway, because I think it exercises my muscle for resilience. I feel like you're going to get so many rejections in your life, you might as well keep practicing. And I feel like for me, every rejection gets me closer to finally being accepted to something. So it's not my favorite, but I also know it's like part of the training. Uh, is there an average number? The thing that comes to mind is kind of Michael Jordan. He has this famous quote, like, you know, I fail again and again, therefore I succeed. And he talked about how he had to shoot like, you know, thousands of shots in practice that didn't go in. And basically, you know, if you don't aim for more grants then you, you don't get them I guess in your case so do you know if there is a number um, like a benchmark where you know like expect an x percent rejection rate even if you're the best artist simply because there are so few grants to go around well okay there are two points here one is okay maybe on average I would apply to let's say like five grants a month and you would only get like how many residencies did I say I get like maybe three to four a year so that's a pretty big rejection rate but another thing as well is also knowing how to create opportunities for yourself. So know how to create more targets for you to actually hit and open more doors. And if you can't open a door, then create one. So for example, sometimes there were residencies that were tailor-made for me just because they knew me and they were able to find like funding for me to do my work for an X amount of time. And I think that's really something that I think more artists need to know is that there are so many opportunities, not just available, but so many opportunities that you can create. You know, artists are very imaginative. They could find a way. Yeah. Was it always like that, though? Because you, it's almost chicken egg. Like, to get to that point in your career where you're making a name for yourself and people are willing to kind of tailor fit residencies for you, you kind of have to get some residencies to begin with so that they can see your work. I guess, how did you go about doing it? Or maybe you can tell us about your journey to get to a point where, you know, doors were being opened for you rather than you're having to kind of kick them down yeah. forcefully. Well, I think for residency, so... Taekwondo, um, right? <laughs> I'm using <laughs> martial arts like, metaphors. So just to be clear, like residencies, I don't think these are necessary for artists. I don't want you to think that you have to like travel the world to be able to make good work. I feel that they were perfect for me because especially in my 20s, I really wanted to see the world in a way that was safe and also ideally funded by institutions so you could develop yourself and your work. I feel safe in the structure of a residency just because um, there's someone who's assigned to handle you, basically, you know, to tell you where to go, um, like your fixer, like if you're a journalist, this would be their job. I felt pretty safe with going to um, different places in the world all by myself. Traveling as a woman is something um, that's a concern. But I think because of that and because of my martial arts experience, I felt totally okay um, going anywhere. I would say early on in my career, I would say the Fulbright program was pretty instrumental just because it's a pretty well-known program that can open a lot of doors for you. I think it allowed me to um, go back to New York for the second time and do my MFA in interaction design at the School of Visual Arts. And um, after that, um, being able to put that in your CV. And then afterwards, I think I did 
the National Art Studio of Korea as my first residency um, and so on and so forth. So I think it can snowball for sure, but at the same time, I think there's so many different types of residency programs that there's really no one size fits all. I've done residencies as long as six months and as short as one month, for example. So I think the key here is to be as flexible and adaptable to any situation and to be able to do work regardless of circumstance. Yeah. The project you did in Korea, was that the one where you climbed every, oh gosh, I'm going to make a Sound of Music reference. Do you know, is this the one where you had to climb every mountain and measure your pulse or your heartbeat? Ah, so this is the project called Seoul 43, where I hiked all 43 mountains of Seoul. Because um, I think going, going to Korea, I was pretty shocked to find mountains in the city. And so I was like, okay, let's just hike all of it. So it took two months, and I think I nearly died in a couple of them. So the, the goal there was after hiking, and I did quantify like my hikes um, using an app. But also, um, I borrowed a jar of soil at, at the bottom of each mountain, and then I assembled all the soils together, and I got the locals to plant with the soil and then return the soil with the plant to the mountain so they could do the hikes that I did. And it was a way for me to share my experience with people. So yeah, that was really super fun. I don't think I hiked a mountain before, or, you know, I, I hiked like maybe one, once or twice, but after that, I, like, I hiked, I hiked. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty good, like, first foray into, like, art residencies and to see, like, how, you know, that was not the proposal I pitched when I applied, but it was good to know, like, how you could adapt depending on, you know, whether inspiration strikes you or whether you could find like, a better project that's a better fit for the residency. Nice. Are all of the programs so flexible in terms of being understanding about when the artist kind of changes the concept midway? I would think they would be, but I mean, is, is that the case? Is that um, a generally would, acceptable thing? I would say yes. I think when you go for an application, I think you, you have to show that you know how to do a project considering the circumstances of the particular city you're in. There are some residencies that actually don't really need you to make anything in the end or even to exhibit. It's more of just like a time for you to even like just read or relax after you know all the exhibitions that you've done. The idea there is for you to be inspired by the place that you're in and see how you can develop new work in the future. So basically they're investing maybe not just in your project, but also in your potential for you to be inspired by the residency um, surroundings. Um, that being said, most of the time, I'm pretty good about sticking to the plan. However, I am very flexible because I think I can sense by now, like when, okay, this project is going to be better if I include this or if I delete that. So I think if you're, if you're doing a lot of residencies, you really have to know yourself and know your practice and see how you could course correct or um, change things and be ready. Because sometimes, you know, because of language barriers, cultural barriers, maybe you realize you, you can't do the thing that you came there for, but then you can actually do other things because the place opened up like other possibilities. So I think it's good. I feel like if there's one other muscle I practice, and aside from resilience, it was going to be like flexibility, which yeah. I think is very good <laughs> as an adult. Uh, or a adaptation and evolution to connect it to your science background as well, right? And then speaking of your science background, no, because I, I read your bio earlier and 
you went from doing a science background and kind of made a, I wouldn't say a complete pivot because you blend it very much into your art practice, but it's not a super common path for somebody who studied molecular biology and biotechnology and you worked in different medical labs to then decide to go become an artist and a designer. Do you think you could talk about your path, how you evolved into this role? I mean, growing up, I feel like, I mean, because you and I know each other from high school, I feel that I've always been interested in so many things. And I think what I wanted to do was to layer. I think layering your um, interests together and sort of seeing where they can go, that's actually something I had a lot of fun with. So in the beginning, I did a science degree because I thought that was a degree where you actually needed a degree. Things like journalism, which, you know, I used to be a a practicing journalist. You don't really need a journalism degree. You just need to be able to work for a newspaper and to be able to write. But for science, I felt that it was something that you needed a bachelor's degree or some degree for. So that's the first thing I did. I like working in a lab, but I want to work in a lab for more creative ways. And at that time, at least early in my 20s, I didn't really understand how this could be. But then when I went to um, Barcelona, I think in Europe, they're very good about being interdisciplinary. And I realized, oh, you know, I was looking at all of these art science museums, artists who base their work on science and things like that. And I realized, oh, okay, this is actually a possible career choice. And so I went back to New York um, this time in the fall, right, to do my MFA in interaction design, because I felt like design was a way for me to harness the art and the science, but to package them in a way that was communicable to another human being, if that makes sense. So I think having those different types of backgrounds, plus my journalism background, where I was asking people questions all the time, I kind of felt like all of them were, it was like me layering. It's like all of different layers of the earth for example, um, and seeing, you know, what different outcomes I could bring out from all of these experiences. And I think there's a level of like, initial fear. Okay, it's not fear, it was actually terror. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, because like, I, at that time, I didn't know anyone who did what I was doing. And I feel like, especially growing up where people kind of did like very standard paths of like doctor, lawyer, engineer and things, I was like, because you couldn't define it. And because if you had to define it with the word, it had to be artists, which is like something I would say Asian families are terrified of. Um, yeah, it was pretty um, terrifying. However, I felt like I needed to keep going at that time because of the opportunities that were given to me. And as well, because I um, train a lot in Taekwondo, I feel like martial arts is definitely like the, the base of um, how I think and how I interact with the world. Um, I felt it gave me a lot of strength um, to be able to push through all of those initial obstacles. And at some point you realize, oh, okay, I'm here and I'm still doing my thing and everything made sense. And thank goodness. Yeah. I guess if you could go back in time, would you do anything differently? Because it sounds like it really worked out for you. I mean, you ended up being able to carve out your own unique niche. And actually there was an appetite for what the multidisciplinary background that you had, right? But would you do anything differently? I would get my driver's license. Because, Joe, I have no idea how I was able to live in all of these countries without knowing how to drive. It's hilarious. And also very sad. Because here in Australia, you need to know how to drive. Because the island is so big. 
but they also drive on the left side of the road. So I'm unsure as to how I'm going to deal with this in the months and years to come. Um, in terms of like broader like career um, trajectories, like would I do anything differently? I would say, I feel like, you know, when, you know, things happen for a reason, things like that, I feel that things kind of worked out. And back then I felt I was onto something, but I just wasn't sure when it would all turn out the way I wanted it to be. So I think I would not do anything differently. I would probably have traveled more just because of COVID. I feel like nothing will ever be the same afterwards. And most of the residencies um, I've done are probably have switched to um, other formats. Yeah. But well, to go back to what you were saying about driving, as somebody who started driving very, very late in life, because I, 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 ended, I was very lucky to um, have friends and family that were you know, happy to uh-huh. drop me off, pick me up when I did live in cities that required driving. But also I was fortunate enough to live in cities where public transportation was super efficient and reliable. So right. I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think that that probably gives you a different way of seeing the city. So that probably also influenced your art practice and it forced you to interact with more people. So thank you. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, I, I think that that is one of the ingredients to as to why you were able to get all the inspiration you do. That That's my theory. <laughs> I feel so redeemed by this comment. So being able to just walk around anywhere or to like ride a bus, I find that is quite the luxury, right? So uh, yeah, I mean, not driving. Um, <laughs> uh, on the driving part, I actually had another question, which was, you said, you know, you want to learn how to drive, but since you've, your work focuses so much on climate change and sustainability, isn't not driving the more sustainable option? <laughs> Meaning right. walking, biking, taking public transport. So it's actually very on brand for you. Thank you very much. This is actually the answer I give to people when they're like, oh my God, how can you be, how can you not know how to drive? Um, I, yes, for me, I think it is the more sustainable option. It's just that just in case I, you know, for emergencies, like if I need to drive a friend to the hospital or something, I would love to know. Yes. Um, yes. But, um, but yeah, I think it's a, it's a skill to have. And there's some, places in Australia I really want to go to but I you, you need to, you need to drive um so I don't know how I'm going to do this especially since Australians drive on the left side of the road yeah. they even walk on the left side of the road I <laughs> crash into someone it's, it's quite embarrassing it's a minor thing but I think in terms of like the broader thing of like what you were asking about career um pivots and like regrets and things I would say not really I think if anything, I every year I challenge myself to be a bit bolder because I think the first few steps are very tentative, right? Like you don't know, um, you're not sure about things, you don't know whether things are going to work out. But now, since I've practiced making things work out, I feel like I just want to do um, bigger things in the future. So yeah, yeah, like falling forward. <laughs> they say that failing forward, falling forward. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> One comment before I talk about kind of more about some of the struggles you alluded to on this topic of climate change, because I'm extremely fascinated by this because I too really miss travel, you know, big part of work before involved travel. And now I feel quite landlocked, especially like international travel, which is, I know it's a privilege and all of that, but you know, you can't help but miss it. And because again, back to the sustainability question, the air and the skies probably cleaned up and carbon emissions dropped as a result of you know more planes being grounded 
many people are actually saying that the way we used to keep like constantly travel before was totally unsustainable. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. there are some people who m- need to travel for work and for logistics, obviously, but the leisure travel and maybe some of the non-essential, quote unquote, non-essential travel. So what would you say to people who say that? Or, or what are your thoughts on kind of less travel being the more sustainable option? Obviously, there are trade-offs as far as cultural exchange go, but because your work is so kind of aligned with sustainability, how do you square the need for travel with this sustainability element? Uh, well, from a personal perspective, I'm actually relieved to not have to travel as much. I think that in the last few months, and, I, and definitely in the foreseeable future, all of these art institutions are looking for um, ways to be able to connect different artists online. So all of these online residencies, I'm really glad that they're opening up. And I was discussing this with one of my fellow residents whom I've never met in person, but we did the residency together, so now we're connected. I feel that it's really good to have this online residency model because think of all the people who could not travel before who are now eligible to do residencies. For example, um, think of like single mom with kids and they, they can't have time to um, travel alone, but they can do a residency and connect with other artists from their houses. So I think in some ways, the online residency model is a bit more inclusive. Now as to other forms of travel, I mean, I do miss traveling, but I realize my work gets a lot deeper if I actually stay in one place for a while. So there are trade-offs and certainly in the COVID-19 era, I feel like, you know, we're not really sure when international travel is going to come or if it does and there's another problem, then borders will be closed again. So I think it's just good for the art world to be a little bit more flexible than usual. And if there's one world who could figure things out, I feel like artists are really game to um, try out new things. So I, I'm hoping that the new world we have will bring in uh, more types of models for artists to get to know each other and more ways for artists to bring their work out to the world. Yeah, and I can't wait for the scientists to make like teleportation or at least video. You know, did you watch Star Wars when Princess Leia is like, you know, help me, Obi-Wan, or help me, Luke, you're the only one who can help me. Yeah, so we will eventually communicate like that, like via hologram, perhaps. Yeah, I hope so. I think, I mean, I remember like being in a workshop online and I was in a breakout room with someone from turkey and someone from rotterdam and we hit it off really well and now we follow each other on instagram it's really cool how you could meet like people from different countries like very randomly so i think it, it will take some getting used to um but by now you know i've done like so many talks online that i'm pretty used to it by now so do you think that something is lost though in the online model oh yeah i mean a lot of things i mean just because we're doing everything digitally means uh, we can't interact in some ways. So for example, I've had residencies where it was the kitchen where we all got together. And that's when some deep conversations will happen. So I think definitely those things are lost and also getting to know like some cities in the ways that I used to, like I can't climb the 43 mountains of Seoul anymore <laughs> for the foreseeable future. But I think I'd rather find constructive ways or constructive things to do in a time like this because I feel I still feel very fortunate that we're able to um, have residency to begin with you know that I don't have a loved one who's sick or who, who passed from COVID or I don't know anyone who's lost their job well maybe I do but they're able to um, find another job and 
yeah, I think because I feel uh, I'm still doing my PhD program and then um, and doing the work that I love, I feel like I don't really have much to complain about. And instead, I'd rather um, be part of the solution, which is like to you know keep making my work and say yes when someone asks me to to do interviews. Hi, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate it. I know that you don't do stuff like this very often. So we go way back yeah. to crying to say no, honey. <laughs> it was a, I am honored. It's like a, I feel like I got an insider scoop or an exclusive scoop. I feel very boring, to be honest. <laughs> I guess what was the best advice that somebody ever gave you? Because you know, you've had so many experiences and you've encountered so many people. So Maybe can you talk about anything that was particularly life-changing? I don't recall receiving this advice verbally, but I do see the habits of the world-class athletes I've trained with in Taekwondo, and they always seem to do just a little bit more than the average person every day. And I think this accumulates over time to a huge advantage. Um, and also the chair of my program and the School of Visual Arts, Liz Danzigo, told us that the secret to happiness is showing up. So I ask myself every day, like, what's the small extra push I can do today that can make my work better? So yeah, if I show up in the lab or the studio, even if I don't really have any deadline, or if I do things on time, or, you know, following through on my relationships and checking in on people, I think those may seem a little bit small, but I feel like they're quite significant. So like over time, like my work is better just because I showed up for it every day. Over time, my relationships are better just because, you know, I hung out with this person um, several times a week. I think showing up for anything is probably a good thing. Yeah, and also, I think in terms of career life advice, um, I would also say to define your own milestones. Because I think most people look at milestones as material things like, you know, getting your dream job, a high salary, a house, or recognition for your work. Um, I see this kind of like as a mad rush to get these as early as possible. And as a result, I think there's a lot of like burnout, divorces, and like different life crises. So I want these all these material things as well, but I feel like they're also unquantifiable milestones. Like, I don't know, unlearning old beliefs, getting over a big heartbreak, pushing forward despite setbacks, you know, putting others before yourself. So I think these are like milestones of resilience. Um, and I think they're quite undervalued in society, which is a shame because I think they're quite important in getting through all the hard things in life. And they also support the more material ones that we have. Um, I think I learned all of this because of martial arts. Like in Taekwondo, you have to have a very strong foundation. You can't get to the next belt without being able to do certain things first. And you can tell when someone is missing an important brick in this foundation because when bad things happen, and they will happen because of life, it's kind of hard for them to get back up. So yeah, and also there's really no end. I feel like I, I'm not even sure if I'm in a good position to give life advice because I feel like my career is, you know, I feel like it's going to keep going and I'm going to keep making art. So what I say now will probably be different than, you know, what I will say like 10 years from now or 20 years from now. So, yeah. Uh, you, you talked a bit about, you know, success milestones. I love what you said about milestones of resilience. I think that's absolutely on point. Uh, I was in an HR meeting the other day where uh, one of the HR managers that I was speaking to actually said that IQ was very like 80s in the 90s was very much about eq or more of 90s 2000s or the noughties right 
EQ and now like in the 2010s up, uh, the name of the game is like AQ, which means adversity quotient. Everyone talking about grit and actually it's like HR professionals are taught to like screen for grit instead. So. Oh, I, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't I, know that. See, yeah. as an artist, I rarely face HR, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I just liked uh, the, the way that this HR manager put it. So that, that was really nice because I hadn't thought of it in those terms also. I mean, I'm sure the HR practitioners are like, man, that's like 10 years old. But, you know, it's the first time I had heard of it in that meeting. <laughs> so I guess the question I was leading up to was, you know, you talk about milestones. I love what you said about the resilience milestones. But as far as milestones go, because you can define success, you know, in your own terms, more of an internal benchmark. Or you could define it as an external benchmark. For instance, I am a, I've made it in Taekwondo when I win an Olympic gold medal versus, oh, I'm better than I was last year, even if I'm not world, on a world famous competing on, on a global stage. I guess, what would you say to somebody who wanted to get advice on how to set that success milestone? Because you need a mix of internal and external to kind of, uh, I guess, be accountable also. It can't be too much of one or the other. Well, it's also a matter of scale, I think. Like showing up to training every day, I would say is a milestone. Like think of these 30-day challenges that you always hear about, especially in um, things like yoga, right? So that's one thing. But there are also like bigger things, like what is, you know, if you're a white belt in um, something, what's the yellow belt for you? And I think that's something that's very personal. I would say like me doing a PhD, I've been thinking about this for years. So being in a program where I actually, you know, love my project, I love my supervisory team, I love the city I'm in. To me, like that's a big milestone and not being able to travel, but still being okay with it. And also like knowing who your friends are, um, having a very strong support network. I think those are also um, milestones. But I think these things are things you really have to map out. I actually encourage everyone to sort of like, really keep a journal or like really workshop it on your own um, like what are the milestones for yourself because I actually think as well like even the the milestones that society kind of forces on us they keep changing and I, you don't want to you know have your life in a tizzy just because you read an article that kind of disagreed with the things that you have you wanted for yourself right so this is something um, you have to build for yourself so I would say like mapping things out and figuring out how to course correct and when, especially if you're in a situation that's not um, ideal. Um, like if you're suddenly in a job that you don't really like or it's not very satisfying for you, okay, what can I get out of this experience and what's the next step? Yeah, I guess in, in your case, because you are an artist and you are defining your own milestones because I think maybe as a scientist or even when you were in school I mean you're still in school now but let's take you know a couple steps back to when you were pursuing your like undergraduate degree it's more quantifiable right you can say oh I'm magna cum laude I'm summa cum laude I'm valedictorian like that's one way of defining success and then science like maybe it's a number of papers you publish or you found a cure to so and so you develop a vaccine for this but for an artist it's a little more subjective would you agree with that? I think the outcomes I have, I mean, it's not just the arts as well. I mean, you know, I also write. So that's also like an yes. outcome. Yes. And the people who um, evaluate that would be like editors, for example. Um, and also the leadership programs I'm in. 
so these are like the milestones I've set for myself. Because when I started doing leadership programs like the the Seed Fellowship with the Macron Cultural Hub and the British Council, and then the Obama Foundation with the Obama leaders, I felt like I was trying to ask myself, okay, what else can art do, and how can artists make a bigger impact? And I think doing these things were a big step for me, just because, you know, I don't really like talking about myself or developing myself. I'm more into like developing my work. So having to think about all these like hard questions, like you know, what are your values? What are the things they tend to ask? It really forced me to dig a lot deeper into myself instead of just the climate change issue I was working on, for example. So yeah, I think uh, those things are quite important. And back in the day, I didn't know these opportunities existed. Like I thought, if you're an artist, well, that's it. You'll be in the studio forever. But I think the barriers or the boundaries of all fields, especially now, are changing and they're more porous. And you could know you could be an artist, but also you could be a writer, an educator, do a leadership program and things like that. And all of this will be the totality of your career instead of just being relegated to one label. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of your work as a writer, I loved the project that you did when you were working with um, a newspaper here in the Philippines where you tried different jobs like zookeeper, sushi, chef. You did all these different jobs and then you wrote about it. It, it is almost like you were doing practice for your work later as an artist and a designer. Um, I Yeah, uh, so it was a semi-regular column I called Temporarily Yours. And it was like me being a temp for different careers. So I really liked being able to step into the shoes of someone instead of just interviewing them and like really seeing for myself what were the, the advantages and disadvantages of each profession. Um, I also think it kind of helped me develop flexibility and adaptability. I think for every um, project I do as an artist, it really requires a different set of skills. Um, I have to consult with different techs um, who are more of an expert in doing certain things. So I think it taught me to be able to fail early and be okay with it and know how to ask for help. So yeah, but I remember, yeah, what was the worst? I don't know if you you remember this, but I was a mascot once for a fast food chain. Oh no, oh no. Awesome. This was very, very, very famous fast food chain from the Philippines. You can probably guess it, but I was that. I'm saying oh no, because I remember being at children's parties, like with people kicking and hitting and stepping on the mascots like some kids can be mean right so I think in terms of me loving to do um, experience-based work like sensory work I mean I would say the seeds of those probably started um, very early like to this day I remember how um, sweaty I was inside the suit right and how heavy it was and how I still had to dance around for the kids and <laughs> so those experiences I feel like experience lasts with you for a longer time than just, you know, interviewing someone or reading about it. And in the same way, I think in terms of art, I feel like, especially in terms of climate change, we have a problem of um, perspective just because the worst impacts of climate change are still further down the line. So how can you bring the worst of experiences in a gallery setting for a brief amount of time that the audience is going to experience your work? So I think that's why, like, if you look at, you know, perfumes or, like, soaps, they all seem very innocuous, like, harmless um, products like we're used to every day. But if you give them a very incisive experience that um, makes them do a double take, that's when I think the experience lasts. 
um, for, a, for a longer time if I just, I don't know, gave them shots of polar bears. So, but again, polar bear photos are very important. <laughs> yeah, I've used polar bears in cartoons when I had to do an editorial cartoon about climate change. And I remember at least five people coming up to me after and being those poor polar bears. So there, there is something to be said for that as well. <laughs> I don't want to like this like, the polar bears only because um I no no I'm, I'm teasing because I, I'm just saying like it, it's a cliche <laughs> for a reason but I really like the approach you've taken yeah I mean yeah because I think also for many people you won't be able to see a polar bear in the flesh so what are the other things to make climate change more relevant like I think of perhaps a very stressed out mom looking after five kids how can you make this person think that this issue is relevant, um, especially when people are, are stressed out for different um, reasons in their lives. And um, I think being able to make a very dry subject accessible is also something that um, artists need and artists are very good at. And so I'm not the only one who um, obviously thinks about these things. Like there are so many um, artists around the world who are also thinking of these things and I think it's great because climate change has so many different perspectives and we need all of those perspectives to be able to build a more sustainable world. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in terms of getting different perspectives, no, because you, you touched briefly on your stint at the School of Visual Arts or SVA in New York. You've studied interaction design. I guess I should have asked this a bit earlier, but not many people are aware of what interaction design is. Do you think you could tell us a little bit about it and connect it to your work as well? I think interaction design is a field where there's just so much that's possible. But the way I interpreted it as someone who previously had both an art and science background, I use it as a way to be able to use design to communicate those concepts to someone else. Now, interaction design may be used by someone in terms of like product design or like designing apps. For example, like how do you make the user be able to utilize your app in a way that's clear where they would not feel stressed out clicking buttons. So I think that's the more commercial side, but from my side, because you know, I was I felt like I was the artists or the conceptual artists in the class, the way I used it was, okay, you have all of these very conceptual things. How can you make the other person on the other end of the art project feel the impact that you want? So this um, requires so many different skills, right? It's not just graphic design or web design, but also perhaps a certain degree like experience design. Like think about the perfumes I would design. It's not just about the scent, but also about the bottles, the packaging, the logos, the name, and the overall story that you want to convey. So I think it's a field that's evolving and has like so many different um, skills that you can get out of. And yeah, it's a field where it, it can be what you want it to be. And for me, I think it's been very useful in being able to articulate my ideas in a way that, that was accessible to everyone. Yeah. So that's, I mean, very clear in your work, I think. Uh, one thing I can remember was the weighing of the heart that you did, which was inspired by the Australian bushfires, right? Do you think you could tell us about that? I mean, it's much better seen, but perhaps you could tell us about it. It's actually a spell from the Egyptian Book of the Dead, um, where Imhotep, his heart was weighed. And if um, your conscience was clear, basically you could enter the gates of heaven 
and if it does not, then the beast will eat you and you are condemned. Anyway, I felt this connection strongly with this particular metaphor just because of the emotional toll of the bushfires. And I remember like I was in Sydney at that time when the sun here in Sydney was red and there was just like smog everywhere. And I was feeling a little bit panicked. Like what if the bushfire smoke gets into my flat? I'm like, where am I going to go? Right. So I think because of the emotional toll and like the mental health toll of the bushfires, I wanted to sort of emblematize that in something. And I had this idea of like casting the ashes um, into hearts. There was quite a long learning curve um, for this for me, just because I've never worked with resin before. I've worked with it so much now. And I think casting these into hearts and then in terms of bringing the sculptures to life, the standard practice is to rub them with eucalyptus oil. And I found this very poetic because eucalyptus trees are some of the trees that are burned in the bushfires. And to bring the sculptures to life and make the colors more vibrant by rubbing them with these eucalyptus oil, I found also very meditative and emblematic of the healing I wanted people to experience when they actually look at the sculptures. So yeah, I feel like it's a way for me to sort of meditate on the bushfire crisis, which is going to happen, you know, regularly. And it's a way for me to raise awareness to, you know, the things that are happening around us without necessarily pointing fingers. And I feel like in terms of climate change, there's so much like finger pointing and polarization when we have to remember that we're all in the planet together. However, there's so much inequalities that make some of us experience the brunt of climate change more than other people. So I think by doing these like more, I would say human-centered, or maybe not even human-centered, more of like planet-centered projects, I'm hoping people will sort of like think more deeply about their relationship with nature. Yeah, that's beautiful. Speaking about thinking more deeply, because <laughs> it's so interesting to hear about kind of your process. And th this is what I love, like just getting into the, the how the projects came to be, because I, I really enjoyed seeing the projects, but it's a whole other thing entirely to hear about the inspiration. So I, I've enjoyed this quite a bit. But as far as, you know, educating people about maybe the caveats or the struggles that could come with this job, you alluded to them earlier, or you spelled them out earlier as far as the, you know, your favorite parts and your least favorite parts. But if someone was worth considering following your footsteps and you really wanted to make sure they were sure about this path how would you try to dissuade them you know like don't take this job if you blank or unless you blank how would you fill in those blanks i think don't take this job if you are afraid of poverty and rejection in the first few years <laughs> okay so i refer to the first few years at least being an, a full-time artist as the gauntlet. Um, that's when everything that you were afraid of will happen, will happen. But I like to think of this as a good thing. And I talk a lot about um, exercising your muscle of resilience. Um, this is the time. <laughs> so what are the things that will happen to you here? Like, you're not, you're not going to have a steady paycheck at least for the first few years. So you have to be able to know how to budget and how to extract as much value from the money you do have. I'm also talking about um, relationships, like who are the ones who will really support you during these very uncertain few years. So um, I've had to go through all of these and I think everyone goes through this. And I feel like now 
maybe I'm in gauntlet light where things really aren't as difficult as they used to be. But at the same time, I think, it, yeah, I feel like I'm over that hump, which is really great. But at the same time, I'm very grateful for that time just because I feel like that's when you're becoming more of yourself. Like, you know what you're made of when you're able to get through a lot of obstacles. So I wouldn't say don't take this job. I would say take this job and, you know, have some fight in you because I think it's really good. I, I love it. Your Taekwondo <laughs> instructors would be proud. Yeah, I have a lot of like fighting metaphors. Um, yeah. <laughs> How did you get into Taekwondo to begin with? Because I, I, I didn't even, I mean, you, you wove it into every story, but I didn't even like list it as one of your professions. Ah, well, I don't have or whatnot. I'm, I feel like I'm a lifetime Taekwondo student. I have no desire to be a coach um, or anything. It's just something I really just like to do. So I got into it when I was very young, but I got really into it when I was early on in my artist career and I was deep in the gauntlet. It was one of those things where I feel like uh, martial arts training is really important, I would say, for everyone. I highly encourage everyone of all ages to do this. Because I think it really develops your muscle of resilience and it really helps you to follow through. So I think in terms of following through, you know, in residencies, exhibitions, my projects, or even like what I talked about earlier about unquantifiable things like your relationships and showing up to them. I feel like having that martial arts training really is very helpful. Because I think if you pattern your life after um, something like a belt system, for example, like I'm asking myself, okay, how do I get to the next belt in whatever endeavor I have? And also from a practical perspective, you know, traveling alone as a woman in the world, it's very dangerous. Um, And knowing how to defend yourself and um, the people around you, I think it's a very important skill more than driving. Can I just say? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. It always comes back to this. I love it. Yeah, I mean, there there are cities, if you're looking for your next residencies, where they've tried to go car-free. So maybe find more of those. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like the, in, in some ways, I feel like residencies are, I mean, at this time in my life, I don't mind doing less of them or doing like more bespoke ones. Um, instead of like doing like four residencies a year, I feel like there's also a time for everything. And I feel like my 20s and early 30s were um, about this. Because I think I definitely wanted to know the world um, for myself and to be able to show something, you know. Um, I think the thing um, about residencies is I feel in some ways um, because of like the workshops I've been asked to do with local communities, um, I do like being able to contribute in that way. feel less terrible about all the, the carbon that traveling gives out, for example. I would also recommend like I know, like buying carbon offsets. I mean, I never really travel unless I really, really have to. Like, I don't think I've ever traveled to go shopping or whatever. It's really only for residencies, uh, workshops and things like that. So it's like when I travel, I do like making it count just because I know about the, you know, the environmental impact of traveling. So, I mean, when you're traveling to make people aware of the climate crisis, I think that's very justified. You're burning lots of fuels, like tell people about climate change. I mean, I feel like the telling people comes after. Definitely, like, residencies, I feel like, are incubation times for new work to develop. So I think it's really important. But I think now that I've seen a lot of the world and there are more ways to interact with the world in a time of COVID, yeah, I look forward to, like, new ways to be able to do these um, project incubations without necessarily having to travel a lot. 
Yes. I really don't think I travel as much as other people, but okay. Like asking a residency, can they please purchase carbon offsets? And they actually said yes. Oh, that's great. Um, so I think um, most residencies are aware of the objections of an artist in terms of traveling. So I think it's also pretty pretty nice. I think um, as an artist, it's good to be able to be reflective of your own practice. Um, it's not just me advocating for something. I'll have to like really do a deep dive as to my own practices. And I'm like, are you practicing what you preach and things like that? Yeah. You mentioned you're looking forward to new ways of interacting. How can people get involved with your projects? Like what's next and how can people kind of see what work you produce? Uh, well, there's always a, an open call for me for um, people, especially scientists, to collaborate with um, in terms of projects. I'm always on the lookout for like scientists to work with, um, publishers who want to um, publish work or communities who want to do something. So that's really uh, not a problem. I do really enjoy working with other people. Currently, aside from my PhD, I'm, well, I am um, part of the sixth cohort of Homeward Bound. It's a leadership program that takes 100 women with a STEM background to Antarctica. So I'm about to start the leadership program um, that's going to be online. So, of course, um, I'm hoping to do something in Antarctica. So I'm very inspired by the women who um, I'm with right now. I think the scientific experience they have, um, I feel like it's, you know, it's amazing to know incredible women like this and to be able to help each other in terms of having a bigger voice, in terms of determining the future of the planet. So, yeah, I think if you send me a DM on Instagram or Twitter or um, my websites are always going to be there. Um, I'm pretty accessible online. We'll put them in the show notes, the links to your Instagram sure. and web bio and website. Speaking of collaborations, no, because I was reading the stat about how it's it wasn't so much the, like converse to what I said earlier, it wasn't so much the passenger travel lessening that made an impact on the planet. A lot of people are saying it was heavy industry shutting down. <laughs> So there's that perspective as well. I mean, there's some people who say it doesn't matter how many like canvas bags you use if certain sectors like heavy industrials are still operating, et cetera, and, and maybe the type of energy we use, et cetera, et cetera. But so if there were companies that were looking to, have you ever done a collaboration with a company? Not, not for greenwashing, but a company that was actually interested in how do we design a better system or a better world? Is that something you even do? Oh, yeah. Um, I actually um, love working with, well, all types, including industry. For example, the very first collection in my um, perfume project, I collaborated with Givaudan, the French perfume um, and flavors company. And then eventually I learned how to, I got some perfumery training and learned how to do it myself. So I think a lot of different companies are actually interested in systems change. I think one thing I'm constantly learning is that, you know, we're in this too deep. We need to help each other out in terms of being able to change the systems that govern us. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I mean, um, in terms of collaborations, like, there's no specific type of people I like to collaborate with. It's more of like an openness to do something. Because I think I could collaborate with a fellow, like a scientist, for example, um, who is very open versus a scientist who doesn't really want to meet me. And, you know, you're going to meet with someone who shows up for you. So, yeah, it's pretty open for me. 
Catherine talks about being open at a time when the world seems more closed than ever. While our borders are closed at this time, we urge you to keep your minds and hearts open. One such cause that deserves this openness is Tahanan Santa Luisa, a crisis intervention and recovery center for young girls who have lived and suffered in the streets of Metro Manila. They focus specifically on the admission of pre-adolescent and adolescent street girls between the ages of 11 to 15 years old upon admission. They are one of the most vulnerable and marginalized demographic groups in the Philippines. Many of the girls that go to the center have been forced into sex work or abused by family members. The Hanan Santa Luisa helps these girls recover from trauma through education, therapy, and livelihood or life skills training. The program seeks to empower street girls by giving them opportunities to learn, heal, and love. Success stories have gone on to college or have reintegrated back into community life with a hopeful future ahead of them. The Hanan, or Filipino for the home, has been badly hit financially and logistically by the pandemic. If you would like to extend your support to them, you can visit their website at www.tahanansentaluisa.com. That's T-A-H-A-N-A-N, Tahanan, Santa, S-T-A, Luisa, L-U-I-S-A, dot com. Or email tahanansentaluisainc at gmail.com. That's tahanan, S-T-A, Luisa, L-U-I-S-A, Inc., I-N-C, at gmail.com. Let's continue to give these young girls a safe place for recovery and growth. Now back to Kat with her own growth story. You know what's funny? We tend to idealize places that are not our homes because I have friends who speak about the Philippines the way we speak about some of the places where you did your art residencies. And, you know, I, I joke about like, oh, you know, brownouts and the traffic and all of this. I mean, I, I say it lovingly because I, it's like, there are days when I when I um, love it. There are days when I, I don't love it so much. But it's almost like, I guess, it's, it's like family, right? Like you're the only one who's allowed to criticize it. So sometimes I would like make jokes about it. But they're like, no, you know, there's so much opportunity. It's so beautiful. It's really interesting to see um, a place through someone else's eyes. And speaking of that, is there a place you visited that actually felt like home? Because home is not always the place where we're from, right? I mean, there are certain places where you go and it's like, oh, I feel a kinship with this place. Because you've been so many places in your residency. I mean, I don't want to sound like Miss Universe or anything, but I really do feel like I left a piece of myself in every single country I've lived in. <laughs> not only because um, I think the types of relationships you create as an artist are really different than if I was going there for business for like a weekend. You know what I mean? Like I really develop um, relationships with people and I think it's really great. So I definitely feel like an international citizen however i mean like i feel like i'm very filipino in terms of i guess being able to be super flexible i feel like it's definitely my philippine side and i think in terms of like philippine values you know we just don't i don't think we like letting people be left behind so i don't like letting people be left out which i think um is really good when you have a very public facing art practice so i'm not just you know maybe i'm uh the projects i have are very um 
provoking and very confronting. But at the same time, I do want to look at the humanity which I think exists in all of us, including the climate change deniers, and maybe some of them are just like misinformed. And eventually, when you know the bushfires reach their homes, maybe they'll believe it eventually. And better late than never. Yeah, you know, you've done residencies in so many places. We would spend hours just to go through each of them. But two that really caught my attention were your stint in the Amazon and then the space exploration project for Moscow. Can you talk briefly about that before we wrap this up? Um, so the thing in the Amazon was for a residency called Lab Verde. Basically, I went there with a group of other artists in an immersive experience. So we actually lived in a research station in the Amazon. The accommodations were very sparse, but they were clean and they're enough. And I was looking at, I was doing research as to what the smells were in the Amazon. So for example, um, there's so many like, like the vines in the, the forest, which they call lianas. It's interesting that I would like smell like one part would smell like ginger, the other part would smell like grass, for example, and seeing, basically taking my nose to every single thing I could possibly um, get my nose on. So that was in the Amazon for space. Um, so that, that was actually an online residency. This was the Space Arts Summer School, co-hosted by Art Typical and the Moscow Museum of Cosmetics. And I remember feeling this like, wow, this is definitely a new world. And it's not so bad because all of us were treated to this tour by the staff in the Moscow Museum of Cosmonautics. And we were looking at the spacesuit of Yuri Gagarin. And I thought that was like, wow, it was what, 11 p.m. here in Sydney. And I'm like, wow, this, it's amazing that I'm doing this on a Monday night here in Australia in a pandemic. So that one, um, I mean, we pitched some projects. Well, I don't know um, if, when things will come to fruition, but for that particular um, online residency or online um, school, uh, it was about like learning about Russian space history and space art, which I think is a field that's not very structured. So there's an opportunity to be able to contribute something to it. It's also a way for me to meet other people whom I probably, you know, some of them I probably won't meet in person ever. But, you know, we had some chats online. So, yeah, I think it was pretty cool. Also inspired me to take up one semester of Russian, which I will not repeat in the foreseeable future because it's really hard, but it was really good to have. (laughs) Talk about bringing your work to a broader audience. That's beautiful. And then... What would you want your legacy to be? Or what would you want as your epitaph? Well, I don't really want a tombstone, you know. I want my ashes scattered or my body composted or something. But I do really enjoy being able to do all of these projects. I'm hoping to change some people's mind as to what our world can be. And I feel like artists are good instruments of being able to pitch different types of worlds that we could actually live in instead of the world we live in now to one that's like more inclusive, free of fear. I mean, I fear for my family and friends in the US every day with, you know, like the shootings and the hate crimes. Yeah, so if I'm able to change a little bit of that or at least nudge the world in the right direction, I think I will die happy. Yeah, fictional character you most identify with? Maybe the kid from The Emperor's New Clothes. You know, the one yes. 
the emperor was naked and I was like, yeah, his clothes were great. And the kid was like, he's naked, you idiots. Well, maybe he didn't say that, but yeah, I feel like I like being the one who can like speak truth to power. Maybe that's what should be on the app. Well, you're not gonna have a tombstone, but it, if you had one, your virtual one would say truth teller. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Recommended reading? Maybe The Art of War by Soon Tzu, or I think some PhD books I'm reading now, I feel like lots of people should read it. Like I love Arts of Living for Damaged Planet by Anna Ting. And also not a book, but like a Coursera course, which is free. Um, Social Norms, Social Change by Dr. Christina Bettieri. I remember taking this course, like power learning it for like a weekend, just because it really, I feel like it was her explaining to me how the world became the way it is, but also allowed me to sort of envision how an artist can possibly change it through behavioral change. So that one, it has two parts. I encourage you to do both of it. Wow. What about any hidden talents? Because you've, you've done like 99 jobs. You've had a million careers, but any hidden talents that the world does not know about yet? Well, I feel like Whatever talent I have, you could probably see it in the projects I do. But I like to think, shockingly, that I don't think I'm bad at money. Hmm. I think I'm good at extracting value from money because I think in terms of grants that were given to me, they're always, of course, quite limited. But if you want to make work that was more than that value, then you're able to be like very resourceful in um, making work that you love and are proud of despite little funding nice that's useful like stretching your dollar <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah what would you define as your biggest failure or your biggest struggle and how you overcame it hmm i wouldn't exactly call anyone's setbacks a failure to be honest i think they're like part of your training like in taekwondo it's like you do like hundreds of kicks before actually nail the kick that you're learning you know in martial arts when you go from one belt to the next sometimes you have to punch a board or two or three I think those setbacks, I find them to be like boards you have to go through. And it's like, you can tell the people, um, like the students who can't punch through the board because they're afraid of it, right? But then my coach would always say, go through the board, Catherine, go through it. So I would imagine my fist or my foot to go past the, the piece of wood that was in front of me. So I kind of see that, that like, what are the boards you couldn't like kick through in the beginning? I would say like maybe there were like some residencies, maybe I didn't get them in the beginning, like first try, but then when I applied again, the next round, I got it and I was kind of surprised. But at the same time, it's like, you know, you pushing through things and never giving up. I think that's, yeah, I would encourage people to sort of revise the narrative for yourselves instead of looking at it as a failure. Think of it as part of your training. Wise words for this pandemic when I think we're all punching through our own metaphorical boards whether they be (laughs) like emotional or spiritual or you know what have you so I like that metaphor I'm going to use it in my own (laughs) life yeah so I want to thank you so much for spending like an evening (laughs) your time with us I know that you you have a million deadlines for your PhD program but I think the work that you're doing is literally changing the world. So please keep doing it. And I hope that people from many different countries continue to fund the work that you do because not only is it 
relevant for our understanding of each other, but it's actually solving problems that we're all facing together. Thank you. And thank you very much for reaching out. Um, And also, like, this is an open call for your listeners to reach out to me in case they need, like, help in residency applications, like, artist problems and things like that. Yeah, I feel like the good thing about having a more digital world is that people are more open to, like, talking, I feel. Like, I think I've seen some people who they don't really want to meet in person, but they will talk to you over Zoom if they could turn the video off. So... (laughs) um so yeah I think and you know it's one of like so many people have been very generous to me for their time and I would really like to pay that forward so call me and I will answer you back that's so nice of you so okay you heard that listeners if you have any questions uh, I'll put her contact deets in the show notes but someone teach me how to drive please (laughs) it's more embarrassing as the years go by (laughs) I feel like by the time you decide you're ready to do that, maybe cars will be self-driving, Lol, right? which comes with its own set of ethical questions, which we can get on into in a separate podcast. I know. <laughs> but, yeah. um, or flying. Maybe it'll be hovercrafts. There we go. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I remember your yearbook write-up said, while the rest of us walked, Kathy flew. So I think that's a bit oh, of God. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, my God. I remember God. that. <laughs> I was an underclassman when, when I read that. And I was like, this is perfect. It's the shortest write-up I've ever seen. It's succinct. I, I liked it. I haven't thought about that for a very long time. It was the most succinct write-up I saw. And I was like, less is indeed more. Ah, well, thank you. If I look back to this interview, I'd be like, you know, it's nice to see how much I've grown. <laughs> In high school, I feel that I tell people that it's like to be valedictorian, you really have to fit in the mold that everyone wants for you. But to do what I do now, you really have to break these molds and create new ones. So I feel that part of your training, and I look at everything as training, is more of being able to unlearn things. And I think this is very important as well in terms of climate change deniers. Like you have to be able to unlearn these beliefs and you know what would it take for you to believe in scientific facts, right? So I think being able to unlearn things is something that's very important, especially in a time of COVID where, you know, all of our career is going to pivot one way or, not, or another. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, sometimes when I think of how I was in high school, like having to be like perfect all the time versus now where I have to, I have to be as crazy as possible. Um, there's just like, it's just like night and day girl. I um, like your evolution. Thank you. I still can't drive, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, thank you so much. I really appreciated this catch-up, and I really look forward to seeing everything else you will produce. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. Don't forget to like, rate, subscribe, and share with a friend so that others can find the pod as well. Do check out at occupationalhazards.podcast on Instagram, where we have more updates from our guests and some listener feedback. Slide into our DMs. We'd love to hear from you. Catch you next episode.